Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Nick Seipel here. I got a really exciting show for you this week. Jason Hall and I uh, sat down with Jacob Goldstein from the Planet Money podcast uh, to talk about his book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Uh, Talk a lot about uh, the the types of projects they work on on Planet Money, uh, the history of money, Bitcoin, and and lots more. So, So stay tuned. It's a really great interview. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, gr- great to have you on the show. We were talking about uh, before the show started, you know, Jason and I are both big fans of NPR. I feel like we're talking to the big leaguers kind of in the, in the podcast game. You've been involved uh, with Planet Money for, for a long time. How did you first get involved with podcasting and then with Planet Money specifically? Uh, what well, happened at the same time, basically, I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I was covering healthcare there. I wrote a blog, remember blogs, uh, for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, Planet Money actually also had a blog, remember blogs. This was 2010, and they hired me to write their blog. And so I went there. And of course, the real action at Planet Money is the podcast. And it was exciting to be there. And I learned how to make podcasts. And now that's my job. Yeah, I think one of the things that really I, I like a lot about Planet Money, I know a lot of listeners do too, is how you make finance and, and economics relatable. How do you look for topics to cover? Like what goes into your process of figuring out what you want to talk about for, for an episode? You know, I think a big part of it is is making the leap from a topic to a story, right? Like there's a lot of sort of subjects and it's like you could kind of do the like wikipedia e explainer. But the thing we try and find is something where where there's a narrative, right? Like a story you could tell where there's a person or some group of people and the person sets out and has some kind of problem and then solves the problem and has some insight and then sees the new, you know, sees the world in a new way. And in, in the arc of whatever that story is, you can talk about intellectual property or, you know, equities or whatever. You can talk about anything, but if you put it inside of a story that has, you know, a chronology and a character, then it's, much easier for people to listen to, especially people who don't think they're interested in economics or finance or whatever. Like humans just like stories. Yeah, I think one of the challenging things with telling stories in, in the podcast format is it's harder, right? It's, it's especially when you're think, look, taking on some of the really complex and complicated topics that Planet Money covers. So one of the things I've, I'm really interested to learn more about is your, your process, right? So you, you have a great idea and there's a great narrative there. There's a great story to tell, but then let's say you want to talk about how oil moves, you know, from, from every part of the value chain, you, you can't just sit down and figure that out the morning of, and then record a 20 minute podcast about it. It takes months. And sometimes it, it seems, so I'm really curious to hear how, you know, from the beginning of the concept through developing a, a finished episode, how does that work? Well, it, it varies. I mean, you mentioned oil, uh, and I don't know if you were thinking of this, but we did a project a few years ago where we actually bought some, you know, some relatively small amount of oil, some number of barrels. One of my of favorite oil. episodes. I want to uh, tell you. So that was all project, and it took a long time, and obviously. It's a nightmare for NPR's lawyers, right? Like, <laughs> what? You want to buy oil? No, like that's a bad idea. Um, and so, you know. What, what that allowed us to do, and so we found some guy, basically a farmer in Kansas who has these little stripper wells, which is like little mini oil wells that sort of get the bare minimum of oil out of the ground, right? And we did that 
A, because no real company would sell us oil, and B, because he's a real person, right? And so he's sort of a person you can meet, unlike trying to meet, you know, whatever, ExxonMobil, like, hi, ExxonMobil, let's shake hands, you know? Um, no, nobody wants to shake ExxonMobil. Nobody wants, or. especially now, right? Like right. 10 years ago, maybe, but today, not so much. Um, and so... Uh, and then we had a whole thing where like we followed the truck and went to a refinery and we talked about refining. Um, and so a project like that took at least months. Uh, I mean, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, I did a show uh, last month, I guess, whenever the, the federal government filed the antitrust suit against uh, Facebook, right? And I've covered antitrust on the show before. So I know the context pretty well. I know that, you know, the experts and that show we did in a couple of days. Um, I mean, one thing we do that's useful is, I mean, think a lot about the structure, think how is it gonna go? Don't just like talk about the thing for a half hour. And then we do these nice, I don't know if this is too like insidery or whatever, but we do group edits. So basically after we have, you know, the tape, the recording we're gonna have, we write a script, we figure out what cuts, what, what you know, recordings we're gonna use. And then um, we actually read the story aloud for our colleagues, you know, maybe five, five people or so will listen in and you just, they just hear it as if they're a podcast listener, but I'm just saying it and playing the tape. And then they give notes, you know, like this part's in the wrong place, this part's confusing, this part's boring, whatever, and you fix it. And that process I really like and find it helps to make the show better. You mentioned the editing process, and that kind of ties into a question I, I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you, you talk about telling these stories and, and kind of bringing these, these stories home for folks. But I'm sure there's some interesting stories that have gotten lost in that editing process, right? That just didn't make the cut. Can you think of an interesting story that, that didn't make the cut and, and tell us about that? Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. One of the uh, producers on our team just the other day was suggesting we do an episode that he called uh, Scrapple. Scrapple, I guess, is like a regional delicacy where you... Yep. I don't know, it sounds like you guys know better than I do. You put a bunch of stuff, leftover stuff in the pan and cook it up or something, is that yeah, right? it's like a breakfast protein type thing, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what's in it either. Okay, um, I'm sure you'll get some emails explaining what Scrapple is, uh, and you could tell me. But his basic idea was like, last year was crazy, we were doing all these shows. If you have like a half-finished thing, something that didn't make it onto the air, maybe we could do like a bunch of those in a show, put them in the pan and make a show. And the one I have for that, actually, we actually interviewed a guy. So this was last spring, you know, like, maybe this was May, so we're, you know, locked down, crazy, whatever. Um, I interviewed this DEA agent, uh, you know, drug enforcement agency agent out in California about this really interesting story that never made it onto the show. Uh, what happened was, so in Southern California, lots of drug gangs apparently use wholesale stores, just like markets in downtown LA to launder their money. Like they have this problem, right? They sell mm -hmm. drugs for dollars. Uh, they need to get uh, their money back to Mexico, uh, but anti-money laundering laws in the US and Mexico make that difficult. So they had set up these stores in LA where in some way, I forget the details, they use the stores to, to launder their drug gains back to Mexico. But when California stores shut down last spring, the drug dealers were screwed, right? They had all this money, they were still selling drugs and getting money, but they had these piles of dollar bills that they could no longer launder. And so in just a few weeks last spring, uh, the, the DEA seized millions of dollars in cash from the drug dealers who had this funny problem of like too much money and nowhere to put it. Um, so like, why didn't we do that? I don't know. We just had the, we just had the one DEA guy. Uh, we were doing lots of other stories. It was a really urgent time. There was lots of news. So that story sort of fell by the wayside, but it's kind of amazing. And there's actually this whole amazing network that runs among uh, China, where apparently like, I guess, is it fentanyl? 
like mm -hmm. raw drug ingredients get made right. basically. And Mexico and the US, there's this whole thing and, and uh, like a triangle market. Uh, and one of the things that the DEA guy said was like, drug dealers sell drugs for dollars, but then they have this problem where they have to get rid of their dollars. And the idea that that's a problem is really a fun starting place for a story that I never made. One of the, one of the interesting things that I'm, I'm looking forward to see is, you know, I think Planet Money does a great job of talking about things that are also relatively interesting in the moment, but also things that are kind of timeless too, right? There's this really interesting balance that I think uh, you, you folks do. So I'm interested to see the things coming out of this period in time that you, you, you do next year, the year after the year after that, that had their kind of their roots in, in this pandemic. But with, with kind of with that in mind, I'm curious to hear what's a story that you were involved with that just surprised you the most? It's interesting. I mean, surprise is something we always are looking for. I mean, I'll tell you one, this one, I liked it so much. I actually put it in the book as well. Um, what's the way in? Well, so there is this great big idea in economics that sounds kind of boring when you say it. And the great big idea in economics is like the most important thing in the world is productivity gains, right? And like productivity is this word that's like, sounds like you're talking about like making checklists or something, right? It's this very boring <laughs> word. But right. in economics, it's the idea that uh, you can get more output for the same amount of input or a better way to say it is like for the same amount of work, you can make more stuff, right? And like, that is the only way in the long run that the well-being of an entire society can go up. Like that's it. Productivity gains are all we've got in the long run, right? And so it's like, to me, basically the fundamental idea in economics, but it's like a boring inert idea, right? It's this sort of topic, but not story problem. And so um, I found some years ago, this work by this economist named Bill Nordhaus. He's at Yale, he subsequently won the Nobel Prize. It's nothing to do with the fact that I did this story. It wasn't even for the same work. Uh, so he did this work early in his career where he looked at um, artificial light, like lighting up a room. You know, now it's electricity. It used to be whatever, whale oil lamps, thousands of years ago in ancient Babylon, they used sesame oil. And he asked this question that he did in a kind of mathy way, but you can restate it as like, if a normal person works all day, how long can they light up a room for, right? You spend a whole day's wages, to buy light, to turn on a lamp in your room. If you spend a day's wages to turn on a lamp in your room, how long can you leave it on for? How much, how much light does a day's wages buy? And he, he did all this cool stuff. Like he, he uh, had some colleague who studied ancient Babylon and like figured out basically how much workers got. And he bought an ancient style oil lamp and sesame oil, and then borrowed a light meter from like a janitor at Yale to figure out how much light the oil lamp gave off. And so what he figured out was for essentially all of, you know, recorded history, how much light can you buy with a day's work? And he found that if you go like in ancient Babylon, it was like something terrible. Like I don't have it in front of me. I think 10 minutes, right? A whole day's work. You can light up a room for 10 minutes. So basically everybody lived in the dark, right? It just got dark, really dark at night. And you go for a long time and it's still really expensive. Like in 1800, when they were using whale oil, sorry, whales, it was like uh, an hour, right? Still basically nothing, right? Like still light is this extraordinarily like luxurious thing that only really rich people can have in any abundance at night. And then you have the industrial revolution, this beginning, you know, around 1800 of this nonstop productivity gains that importantly you didn't have before that, right? We take for granted that 
at least in the long run, things get better. We might have periods of stagnation or inequality, but overall we expect material improvements. But that was not the historical norm for like thousands of years. But industrial revolution hits, that starts and you really see it in light. So you go from an hour to like five hours in 1850. And then of course you get the light bulb and you get um, power grids, right? And uh, this is even before LEDs, he did this in the 90s. You get, by the 90s, so you've gone from, you know, 10 minutes of light for a day's work to an hour to five hours. And then by the end of the 20th century, you get, is it 20,000 hours? I mean, you get just some right. absurd, absurd right. amount of light. And what that shows you, what that shows you, what that story tells you is we are so much better off in material terms than people used to be, that it's just, it's just, it's bizarre. It's obscene. It's like, beyond what even we think, right? And I mean, one, one lesson is just, wow, our material needs are really well met. Uh, I mean, obviously there's still inequality, there are uh, environmental consequences. The other really important insight from that that I think is paired with the idea of productivity growth and it's like the big insight of economics for me is everybody can have more, right? That chapter in the book, I think I called it, everybody can have more money or that's my, it's my, that's my favorite chapter in the book. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's my favorite chapter in the book. And, uh, I, and I just want to, I want to say too, uh, your book is worth buying just for the illustration that shows, just for that graph that shows how much more light people can buy today. Like that one, it's just such a, you know, you look at a page and it starts and then you look at the next page and the chart is still going up and you look at the next page and then, hey, you're not quite done. It's still going higher. Yeah. Right? It's just, yeah. it's remarkable how that visual representation uh, re reflects how for thousands, like you said, thousands and thousands of years, there was essentially no change. And then overnight, it just like that. And I mean, one really important to me thing that follows from that is, you know, I mean, the, the cliched way of saying it is the pie can get bigger, right? Or the, the world is can be positive some, but you know, what it means is one person can have more without somebody else having less. And like, that's really profound. And I think not intuitive. I feel like we're wired to believe that, oh, if somebody else is getting more, they must be taking it away from somebody else. If somebody's getting richer, someone else must be getting poorer. And like, clearly that happens sometimes, but it doesn't have to happen in that way. And in the long run, that has not been the case. And like, that's a huge deal, like a huge insight into the way the world can work, right? It, it, because I think it's really easy to get stuck in a zero sum thinking, uh, which is not a nice way to live, right? Like I'd way rather believe in a positive sum world than a zero sum world. And also it's true, or at least potentially true. Uh, yeah, Nick, I, I think this is, that's a perfect, I think this is a perfect transition to the book, right? Because this is addresses how money has changed and how we don't have to view it as a zero, a zero sum thing. Nick? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it's a good, a good time to, to, to transition uh, to the book. You know, you talk about this, this positive sum uh, nature of exchange and that medium of exchange is money. So, so what first got you interested? Obviously, you've written a book about it. Um, what got you interested enough in money to write a book about uh, this topic? Well, well, there's different answers to that question. I mean, the, you know, the one I tell in the book is, is uh, it goes back to the financial crisis of 2008. So at that time, I was still working at the Wall Street Journal, um, but I was covering healthcare. So, you know, I was, I didn't know that much about finance, basically. I read the paper, uh, but, but I, I had never really paid that much attention to money. You know, I think like a lot of reporters, I had like a little wariness of money, like, sure, I want to make a living, but like, I don't want to be too interested in money because I don't want to be greedy or something like that. 
uh, kind of an emotional response. Um, but with the financial crisis, it was like, wait, something weird is happening with money, right? <laughs> like, obviously. Uh, and so I went out to dinner uh, with my aunt, who was a, a businesswoman. She'd gotten a, a, her MBA at Wharton in the 80s, and, um, but also like had been an English major like I was. So she felt like a kind of, a, of an, a, an approachable person to talk to about money. And uh, you know, this was when the stock market had crashed and real estate prices had crashed. And literally like trillions of dollars in wealth had disappeared, which seemed strange to me uh, because like, what does that even mean, right? Where did it go? I asked her and she said, look like that money, it was never really there in the first place. She said like, money is just fiction. Money is just like made up basically, uh, which is wound up being the sort of core idea of this book that I wrote, you know, 10 years later and, and sort of set me on the path. Uh, and I think, you know, Fiction is a thing I was interested in, right? Like fiction, I'd studied English in college and, and this idea, I guess, you know, often I think from the outside, I had thought of money as this very mathy thing, right? It's like very cold. I had associated it with selfishness and greed and like finance people were math people who just wanted money for themselves. But as I learned more about money, what I realized is like, that's not really true. And importantly, the, the, the core fact of money is that it is this social invention, right? Like one person can't invent money. That's not money. One person can invent a steam engine or something and it works just fine. But if for money to work as money, more or less everybody, many people need to agree that it is money. And when you look at the history of money, it is this very social thing. So I wanted to make a sort of, you know, money for poets, money like as like this interesting series of stories about human society. Right. So that raises the follow-up question. I feel like a little kid, like asking their parents, but like, so where does money Great. come from? Uh, where does money come from? So, you know, there is a very compelling story that money comes from barter, right? This, this uh, very compelling idea that in the absence of money, uh, people traded stuff, right? Which was inconvenient because if you had something I wanted, I couldn't just buy it from you. I also had to have something you wanted uh, so that we could trade. And if I didn't, I would be screwed. And you would be kind of screwed because you would have this thing you wanted to sort of sell to me, but there was no such thing as money. So we'd be out of luck. Um, and that was the story people told about money for a long time. And then what happened in the last several decades, century-ish, was anthropologists started going around the world and studying different cultures at, you know, in different sort of um, economic models. And they never found that kind of barter world existing. And they started to say, wait a minute, maybe that barter story isn't necessarily where money came from. And what they found instead was in you know, small traditional societies, these are places where uh, people basically all know each other. You, know, you think of a sort of tribal or like kinship type of society. There are lots of really strict rules and norms about gift giving and reciprocity and like when you have to give people stuff and when they have to give you stuff, um, the sort of most prominent ones that seem to occur again and again in different societies are about uh, um, marriage, right? Like if you're gonna marry somebody, it, it varies like how the gender dynamics work, but typically like one side has to give the other side uh, some amount of some prescribed thing like cattle is a classic in a lot of places, but it can be different things, cowrie shells, boar tusks. Uh, and murder is another one, exciting, right? If you kill someone, uh, there are lots of rules about what you have to give their family. And those rules and the things that those rules apply to cattle or cowrie shells or whatever, uh, 
those seem like the real roots of money, which does fit nicely in this idea of money as this thing that arises out of social rules. And it also, I mean, to me, and this is a little like out there, but like it, it helps me think about why people have such strong emotional responses to money, right? Like clearly there's a rational reason to be preoccupied with money to some extent, because we need it and we want to have a house and food and whatever. But also a lot of the time our responses to money go beyond that rational amount. And I think the deep roots of it speak to that. I, th I thought it was really interesting too from the book that, and this, this crushed the soul of lots of English majors out there, that written language was a product of accountants and not poets. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was ultimately okay with it as an English major. Uh, yeah. So the first writing, at least that we know of, is from uh, Mesopotamia, you know, like classic cradle of civilization thousands of years ago, Sumeria. Um, and basically, I mean, there's a nice origin there too. So at least, and again, this is like deep in the, deep in the fog, but the story that I find compelling and that scholars seem to find compelling is uh, people in that, in that region, you know, sort of uh, whatever, Middle East, basically, would give each other for, for sort of IOUs, they would put these clay uh, little figures, like a clay ball, a clay disc, or a little clay cone inside a clay ball. So I think, I don't have it in front of me, but like a cone represented maybe a sheep, like one cone would be like six sheep or something. So you would put a little clay cone inside a clay ball, and I would give it to you. And that, and then you would lend me the six sheep, right? So you're, you would hold this ball like a claim check. The ball would be like a IOU six sheep, right? And you could like break it open and be like, see, you owe me that six sheep. I got the, I got your little token. And then somebody figured out that uh, you could press the clay cone into the outside of the clay ball, right? It's clay. So when it's soft, you could make an impression and it makes a little triangle. So now you don't have to break open the clay ball to see the IOU inside. You can see, look, my clay ball from you has a little triangle on it. Uh, you owe me six sheep, Goldstein. Uh, and then they got a little more refined as cities started to grow. And there were these, what they call them temple complexes, but I think of them like city hall, basically, right? These were like, you know, states run by a religious leader, city-states. And, and there was like a scribe culture, a job was being a scribe. And they started just using like stylus, some kind of a reed stylus to make marks on clay tablets that were also receipts basically. And that is really the first writing we know of. And it is accounting. I mean, it's, you know, so-and-so delivered a bowl to the temple or whatever. Um, but I'm okay with it. I'm, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna read novels more than I'm gonna read balance sheets, but like, it's cool. So, so you talk about balance sheets and, you know, so we want to know what, what people actually own and, and all those sorts of things, which I guess ties into another, another theme that you have in the book, this idea that, that money is trust, right? Uh, can you talk about that theme and how that, how that applies to the development of money from, you know, the, these kind of crude tablets to, to what we have today, which is a kind of a very robust financial system? It, it is a robust financial system. It is also more dependent on trust than maybe ever, right? I mean, once you get rid of gold, as we basically did in the 1930s and then officially did in the 70s, but really in the 30s, um, there is nothing there, right? I mean, one of the really amazing things about money now, the like stoner fact about money is like, why is it worth anything? Because we all say it is, right? Uh, I mean, maybe because the government will take it in taxes, but really because we all say it is. And so the only safety net is, is trust, basically. And you know, at this point, what we're fundamentally trusting is 
on one level, the government, on another level, just society, right? The dollar is really underpinned by America as a going concern. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so you talk about that, this kind of importance of, of trust and, you know, there isn't this necessity that the current financial system kind of remains in, in place. You, you talked at one point in the book about, about the example of China, one of the earliest economies that, that you know, had paper money and paper money didn't last there uh, because I guess trust in the system dissolved. Can you talk about that example and, and what that tells us about kind of how financial systems can change over time? Yeah, that's a really extraordinary story that, to be honest, I didn't even know, you know, I've been at Planet Money for about 10 years when I started working on the book, a little less, but, and I didn't really know the China story uh, until I was working on the book. So what happened was, um, well, it starts around 1000 AD in the province of Sichuan, where they, um, they actually were using iron uh, for coins there. And this, of course, is the era when the value of a coin is based on the value of the metal, right? In Europe, by this point, uh, they're using a lot of silver coins, I think some gold at that point. In a lot of China, they're using bronze, uh, which is, you know, mostly copper, more valuable than iron. But in Sichuan, I guess they didn't have that much bronze. So iron is like garbage money. It's like all you've got is pennies or something, right? And a, a, a pound and a half of iron coins would buy you a pound of salt, right? Like it's literally less valuable than salt is how bad your money is. <laughs> so this uh, merchant, a merchant, we don't know who, in the, the capital of Sichuan starts letting people uh, leave their iron coins with him in exchange for a receipt, like a, like a claim check basically, right? And then people start using those paper claim checks to buy stuff. Like, I don't need to go get these 2000 iron coins just to buy a pound of salt. I'll just give you this claim check, you give me the salt, and then if you wanna get the iron coins, you can go get the iron coins, right? So the claim check becomes money. The birth uh, of the checking account. The birth, well, it's really the birth of paper money. Right. Like the paper money at the beginning is kind of like a paper check, uh, but it, it's paper money, well, really until the 1930s is an IOU, right? People yep. think of right. paper money as just a, a thing that represents some amount of gold. You can go to the merchant or the bank or the central bank and get gold. Like that's all it was until then. Like the profoundness of that shift is really quite something. Um, well, except for a moment in China, which we'll talk about in a sec. So, uh, so, so the Chinese see that paper money is a good idea. Um, it spreads even to the parts of China where they are using bronze coins and it helps to drive this really incredible economic revolution in China. I mean, we were talking a few minutes ago about the industrial revolution that we all know about from high school or college or whatever, and that you know started around 1800 in, in England. But China had a kind of proto-industrial revolution hundreds of years before that, around 1000, 1100 AD, uh, where they had kind of similar to what would happen in Europe hundreds of years later, they had scientific uh, advancements, the magnetic compass, and uh, agricultural advances, they could grow far more rice and urbanization. Uh, cities grew to like a million people each, which was like 10X what they had in Europe at the time. And there's even accounts of like restaurant scenes and like picky hipsters going to restaurants in you know, the capital of China at the time. It's like this real flowering and paper money is part of that. You know, It's a technological advance because you can move value around now way more easily. It's a you know non-industrial society. There's no motorized transport. So it's really hard to move coins all around the country. It's heavy and paper is light. Uh, and so there's more trade and trade leads to more wealth. It's great. It's like this flowering of human civilization. And then they get invaded by the Mongols, which seems not great, but 
the Mongols love paper money. You know, they have this huge empire that spans Asia, basically, incredibly large. And they're nomadic. They're going everywhere on their horses, right? That's their whole game. And so they see that like, oh, money in paper. Amazing. We don't have to like load our horses down with all these coins. It's, it's a great way to move purchasing power around, move value around. Uh, so they run with paper money. And there is even this moment, hundreds of years in advance of the rest of the world, where Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan, decides paper money is just going to be paper. It's, it, you, you're not going to be able to get your bronze coins for it anymore. And it basically works. Um, so there is this incredible fiat money moment in China in the like late 1200s, early 1300s. Eventually, as you said, a new revolution pushes the Mongols out, the Ming dynasty takes over. And the Ming dynasty is basically like reactionary. They don't like all this money and markets kind of the way sort of people are skeptical of, you know, Wall Street and banks. And they think like the farmer is the real ideal and the agricultural village is the real ideal. And they get rid of paper money altogether. And nobody uses paper money for hundreds of years after that anywhere in the world. And China gets poorer as a result. Like China not only stops getting richer, they actually get poorer, which you know, sort of going back to the earlier conversation we had about light and the increase in productivity and the world we live in and how used we are to that. One of the really chilling, useful things about that China story is like, you can go backwards, you can get poorer. That is a thing that happens in the world. And like, we shouldn't take for granted the notion of economic growth because it's not given. An observation I had of that. And then Nick, I know we, we want to um, move on to some, talk a little bit about bubbles here is I, I think the loss of paper money and, and the other things that were going on with the Ming dynasty is it it undermines specialization, right? And when you undermine specialization, you limit all of those productivity gains, you limit an economy's ability to advance and develop. So I think, what, what are your thoughts on, on that playing a role and how that's kind of tied to money, right? I mean, the two things are, they're very much interrelated, I think. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, Trade, I mean, tr the, the, the word you didn't say in there that I would add is trade, right. right? The sort of nexus of all of those things is trade. And the ideal that the, the Ming dynasty, the rulers who got rid of paper money had was of the self-sufficient agricultural village, right? right? And you can see why that's appealing, right? I feel like we have a kind of romantic ideal still of like self-sufficiency and like the frontier and like the village is good and the city is bad. I feel like there's a very deep emotional connection to those ideas, but nobody is good at making everything, right? right. And like, if you just make what you're good at, and trade that or sell that to other people and other people make what they're good at, then everybody can have more stuff, right? Yep. And like, I understand that it's not always optimal to have more stuff, but if we say better services, if everybody can have enough food to eat, right? The reason hunger has diminished, there is still hunger in the world and that is a terrible thing. There is way less hunger in the world than there used to be because farmers are really good at farming and most people don't have to farm anymore, right? Because Productivity has gone up and like the bigger the market is, the more people who are, you know, trading with each other, the more you can have specialization, the more productivity can go up uh, and the richer everybody can be. I mean, it, it goes back to the pie getting bigger. Yeah. So, so that abstraction that money gives you this ability that I can turn my labor into something that I can exchange for other things allows us to put our, our labor to highest and best use, which, which grow, you know, encourages economic development. That's fantastic. I guess. Well said. On the other side of that, um, however, is, you know, 
it, it allows opportunities for bubbles. So I can invest in a company on the whole other side of the world. Someone in China can invest in, say, uh, uh, an electric vehicle company in America or a renewable company or, or, or any, of the, any of these sorts of things. And um, so money makes that possible in a way that if I'm bartering, exchanging with you or those sorts of things, you just can't do. Uh, can you talk about the role that financial bubbles have played in the history of money? Yeah. So uh, financial bubbles and their cra- and, and the and the the popping of them also, right? I mean, exactly. May, maybe my favorite one is in um, in France in the early 1700s, and and Europe, Western Europe around this time, like late 1600s, early 1700s, is really this extraordinary moment in in history in general and in economic history in particular. It's it's really the birth of modern financial capitalism in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's when actually paper money is just getting to Europe in a kind of similar way that it got invented in China. It's getting reinvented. It, it, one of the earlier ones, just fun aside, is in um, Sweden where they used copper for money, sort of similar to the iron. Copper, obviously not as valuable as gold or silver. So they would have these quote unquote coins that were actually like several feet long and weighed like 30 pounds and people had to carry strapped to their back. So maybe not surprising that that was the first place in Europe where they're like, you know what, why don't you leave this at a bank and we'll give you some paper you can use in exchange for it. So paper money is getting going. Uh, the Bank of England in England is invented, which is like a proto-central bank. Uh, you have um, joint stock companies, which are essentially like the first multinational corporations with stock that people can trade, uh, particularly the Dutch East India Company is a really successful one. And so uh, you have walk into this world, we were talking earlier in the show about going from a topic to a story and having a person. So there is this incredible person who walks into this world and does amazing things. His name is John Law. Uh, He's born in Scotland in the 1600s. He moves to London as a young man. And he's sort of this man about town. He's, uh, uh, you know, chases women and, and drinks and gambles. And as this kind of person did at that time, he, he gets into a duel and he kills the other guy in the duel and he's arrested and thrown in jail and convicted of murder and sentenced to death. And then he escapes from prison and sneaks off on a ship to Europe. And amazingly, he is like this brilliant guy who uh, does a bunch of things. He, he, he studies up on probability theory, which is brand new at the time, which is just sort of being invented by gamblers. Probability theory is invented by gamblers who are weirdly for the first time, even though people have been gambling for thousands of years, doing the math about gambling to figure out odds. And so John Law does the math and gets rich as a gambler, step one. Step two, he travels around Europe and sees all of these threads of sort of proto-capitalism that I was talking about. He's in Amsterdam and he sees uh, he sees the joint stock company and the Dutch East India Company, which is making Amsterdam rich. And uh, he's in you know England and he sees paper money and the Bank of England. And he realizes that this is a moment when you can sort of take all of these things. He's like, a, he would be like a an entrepreneur today. I feel like he would be like a Silicon Valley startup guy today, right? Takes all of these different things that really are like financial technologies and has this vision where he's like, I could put them all together and build a whole modern economy, like none that has ever existed. And he starts pitching these ideas, like the way today you would pitch VCs. He's going around and pitching like dukes and princes and whatever, whoever will listen to him. And he finally finds a taker in in France uh, where the King Louis is is a young boy and France was being ruled by a regent who's like a duke, the Duke of Orléans. And the duke, like John Law, is both smart and like loves to party, loves to drink, has like a chemistry lab, but also like, you know, hangs out with opera singers and whatever. 
kind of fun. Sounds kind of fun. Um, and just your typical uh, Renaissance nobility party. Dude. Yeah, Duke, French, right? Right. right. I mean, it does seem interesting. Pretty amazing. Go to, yeah. go to dinner there. Yeah. Um, and the Duke likes John Law. And, you know, John Law is very charming and very smart. And the Duke just lets John Law set up shop in France. So John Law creates the first modern bank in France and the first paper money in France and uh, gets control of France's um, territories in North America, right? This is pre-Louisiana Purchase. You remember Louisiana Purchase? So France controls like the whole middle chunk of, of North America all along the Mississippi River. Uh, John Law names the town, the settlement at the mouth of the Mississippi River for his patron, the Duke of Orléans, right? New Orleans, fun. Um, and France has been basically bankrupt at this point. France has been fighting endless wars as they did. And the previous king had at one point like melted down all his silver to make more coins. Like the country is in bad shape. And, and John Law, by doing all this work actually makes the economy start to boom, right? Like finance can be useful especially if you haven't had it and nobody can borrow money and there is no money. And he's, you know, printing this paper money and trade is increasing like we were talking about and things are going great. So far, so good. Right. Uh, and then uh, he starts selling stock in this uh, trading company that has the monopoly rights to Louisiana, to, you know, French Louisiana, a big chunk of North America. And people are like, oh, well, the Dutch got rich from the Dutch East India company. And they saw how Spain got rich from their holdings in South America, basically. And so everybody starts buying stock in uh, the, the Mississippi company, they call it. And the price of the stock starts going up. So now you're asking about a bubble. The bubble is coming, right? The price of the stock starts going up and up and everybody's getting rich and people are coming to Paris to trade stock. And they actually have to close off a street because it's so full of people trading the stock. And uh, they invent the word millionaire, fun detail, because everybody's getting so rich, they need a new word for it. What are we gonna call these people with millions of whatever, what were they? Louis d'Or maybe, I forget what the, what the unit of account was. Um, and, uh, and, and then it starts to get a little out of hand, right? John Law is printing more and more paper money that people are using to buy the stock. And now, you know, in the same way that France before John Law had like too little finance, now it has too much finance, too much money, too much of the economy is kind of getting swallowed into John Law's system. And ultimately the, the bubble bursts. I mean, for a minute, John Law tries to make paper money not <clears throat> redeemable for silver and gold, another moment of like an effort at fiat currency, it doesn't work. And he gets, he gets chased out of, out of France by a mob and the whole French economy collapses. And the French, like the Chinese had bail on paper money for a while. And uh, John Law lives out the rest of his days in Venice. And the British, they had their own bubble at the same time, but they didn't get as screwed and they end up doing better. And you know, people talk about like the Napoleonic Wars and Britain's victory in the Napoleonic Wars having some amount of roots uh, back in this Mississippi bubble. I don't, that's pushing it. I'm not gonna endorse that argument, but it's fun to think about. I don't want to steal your conclusions from the book, um, but the, fi the findings, the finding, the finding that you that you reach at the end of that is a little different than I think a lot of kind of the general ideas of how responsible John Law was for what ultimately happened that burst this bubble. But it, there's an interesting term here that that you that you bring up in that chapter talking about the real economy, and I think this is really interesting because to me it ties back to the conversation you have with your aunt about where did the money go, right? So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I like that connection. I haven't thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. So right, so the real economy, this is a just a, a piece of jargon that economists today use when they're talking about um, 
not finance, essentially, right? The real economy is the economy that has nothing to do with banks or stocks or bonds, right? Like when, if you have a job that is not in finance, you work in the real economy, right? Or like, as I put it, I think in the book, like the carpenter who builds the house, the contractor who builds the house works in the real economy. Uh, the mortgage broker who gets you the loan does not work in the real economy. They work in finance, right? And when things are working well, finance, makes the real economy work better, right? Uh, you can have a, an economy where there's not enough finance, right? Where people who are like hardworking, have plenty of money, could afford to buy a house if they could get a loan, can't get a loan, right? That world exists. Uh, even today in a lot of the developing world, they're undercapitalized. They don't have well-developed financial systems. Um, and so that's a problem. More finance is helpful uh, in that universe. It helps the real economy. Conversely, you can also have too much finance. You can have finance get out ahead of the real economy, which is what we see in a bubble. It's certainly what we saw in, uh, in the Mississippi bubble. It's what we saw in the United States and Europe uh, to a lesser extent in the early part of the 20th century, right? The, the 2008 financial crisis followed this kind of over-financialization, like finance got out ahead of the real economy. So you, you need to have a balance. And one of the things that's striking to me about John Law is, is more about a balance of power, really, right? Like there is this idea that actually one, one of the Dukes who was sort of watching this whole thing in France said was like, you can't have good finance in an absolute monarchy. Uh, maybe it would work in, you know, in a place where power was more divided. And as it happened in England, uh, by this point, uh, parliament had more power relative to the king. It wasn't such an absolute monarchy anymore. And there is a reasonable argument that that made it uh, more stable. It basically made more finance more stable in England. It made it easier for the king to borrow because there was more credibility that people would force him to pay back. And so, I mean, to me, what's interesting about the John Law story, like it's not that John Law was a con man. That's, I mean, to your earlier point, like I, I don't think John Law, I think John Law believed in his system. Like, I think he really believed in it. He, he wrote these like fairly technical books about like why it made sense and they're compelling books. The problem maybe was that he had too much power, right? That he could just keep printing money and selling more shares and doing whatever he wanted. And there was no check on him. And so like when I hear people today arguing in the United States about how much regulation there should be of banks and how much they should be able to do what they want and, and various tensions between regulators and the fi financial system, players in the financial system and everybody else, like those arguments are good. Like wherever we should move or whatever, the fact that different groups of people have power and are pushing and pulling against each other, I think that makes it more likely that we won't, it reduces the risk of crises basically. Obviously it's, it doesn't reduce them to zero. We will still have crises, but I think we'll have fewer. The tensions are maybe a signal that the system is functioning properly. Right. Yes, at least they increase the chances of it. Right. You can have the tensions and still have failures, but I think failures become less likely and maybe less frequent. Right. So, so you talk about these issues about kind of money printing and you know the importance of con conditions in the economy to, to how money develops. And we also talk about bubbles, which I think is kind of a natural transition to what's going on with maybe Bitcoin right now. D different people might say it's a bubble. Different people might say, hey, it's headed to, headed to a million dollars. But I think it definitely reflects some attitudes around the financial system today and maybe where, where money is headed in the future. Where do you see Bitcoin and kind of cryptocurrency as a, as a sub kind of genre fitting into financials? 
I mean, Bitcoin is still super interesting to me, right? That, you know, the part that I talk about the most in the book is, is the origin story of Bitcoin, uh, which I found, I mean, again, to, to the earlier point, like a very useful way for me to understand things and to explain them is to tell the story of how they came to be, right? Because um, there's narrative and there's ideas and, and it goes back to the 1980s, which is kind of a long time ago now, right? Um, when this guy, this uh, cryptographer, this expert in sort of codes, right, at, at uh, Berkeley named David Shom, wrote this paper, um, the subtitle of which was a transaction system to make Big Brother obsolete, right? And it's this incredibly prescient um, sort of semi-technical paper where he basically sees that we are heading into what I think he calls a dossier society, right? And again, this is like when, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is a baby or something. He's writing this and he's like, look, computers are gonna be everywhere. Everything we do is going to be tracked. Every purchase we make is going to be tracked. And what we need is something that has the anonymity of cash, of paper money, but that can exist uh, in the digital world. And he comes up with an idea for how to do it. And in his idea, there is a bank or something like a bank. There is a trusted intermediary. He basically invents a digital cash, but that requires a trusted intermediary. And then this group of, of intellectuals, coders, sort of techno libertarians, largely based in Silicon Valley, finds his work and they decide they wanna push it further. They wanna have digital anonymous currency that doesn't even require a trusted intermediary, that doesn't even require a bank. And that is a technically hard problem to solve, but over, oh, about, I don't know, 15 years or so in the nineties into the early aughts, they're working on it and they're solving one technical problem after another. And then finally in 2008, you get, you know, there's kind of this series of like these attempts, these different kinds of sort of proto cryptocurrencies. And then finally in 2008, you get the Bitcoin white paper, which happens to land right at exactly the same time as the financial crisis is happening, which is perfect, right? Because to go back to the theme of trust that you guys were talking about, like it's a moment when people are losing trust in banks and in money and in governments. And here is this very technologically elegant system that promises money without governments or banks where you don't have to trust any institutions, you just have to trust the code. But then what happened since then, right? Like, perfect, okay, here comes the revolution. But that was 2008 and like, that's kind of a long time ago. And on the one hand, people are willing to trade lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of dollars for Bitcoin right now. On the other hand, Bitcoin clearly has not taken over the world. It's not what people use to buy stuff. And that kind of pair of facts is really striking to me and I don't quite know what to do with it. Yeah, maybe along the lines that, you know, earlier I asked, where, where does money come from? Uh, you know, I'd ask you, like, what is Bitcoin? Do you see it as a, as a currency or is it money? What is it? I mean, it's, it could be money, right? Like it's set up in such a way that if, if a bunch of people wanted it to be money, it could work. Although it, there's, there are a lot of frictions there still, right? The, the transaction costs seem pretty high right now. It can't handle that many transactions per second. I know people have been trying to solve those problems, um, but it, it, you know, I don't wanna be overly binary about money. It's nice to think of things as sort of on a spectrum more, more or less like money. But if you really made me say, is it money, yes or no? I would say no or not yet, just cause like, I, I never bought anything with it. I don't know anybody who's ever bought anything with it. 
most places I shop, you can't buy with it. I mean, the simple idea, we could talk about other definitions, but I don't think it's money yet. A couple, a couple things that I think about when I think about Bitcoin, and you talked about how you know the United States uh, almost a century ago essentially came off the gold standard. And one of the reasons, and you talk about this in the book, is one of the problems with the gold standard is it so fixes your supply, right? And how there was this hard transition for society to go through from did the value did the value of money change or did the price of the goods change, right? And uh-huh. and that that tension that transition to something like Bitcoin, you, you go back, you you recreate the same problem, it seems to me. So I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on that versus when you think about fiat money, that it can address address some of those issues. And when it comes to trust, you know, where how how do those what's the interrelation? Yeah. So right. So Bitcoin was developed to be finite, which at some margin, that's important for money. You can't have it be infinite, but there, there is a finite number coin that will ever be created, period, full stop, right? And so in that way, it is clearly modeled on gold. Uh, one of the early other cryptocurrencies, I think was called Bitgold or something like that, um, which some people like. They like thinking of money as gold. Economists almost to a person think that's a bad idea. Uh, You know, what happens when you have a fixed amount of money and a growing economy is you get deflation, you get falling prices, right? And we live in this basically low inflation world now. Sometimes it gets higher, sometimes for a while it's been quite low. So we're not used to thinking about deflation, but deflation was a key driver of the Great Depression, right? It was a key element of the gold standard, no pun intended. Um, and the, the problem that there are a number of problems with deflation, the key problem, well, if you have debts that, uh, if you have debts, what happens in deflation is prices fall and wages fall, right? They tend to rise and fall together, but your debts don't fall typically, right? So if you had to work, whatever, a week, a month to pay off your mortgage, but you have deflation, then now you have to work longer to pay off the same mortgage, right? So you get the problem in the, in the depression is, uh, prices are falling because the gold standard is deflationary, basically. Uh, and people are defaulting on their loans and then banks are going under and more people are getting laid off. And you're in this deflationary spiral. And we can break that with fiat money in a way that you can't break it on the gold standard with Bitcoin. Or put another way, I mean, when the price of Bitcoin doubles, that's the same as the price of everything falling in half, right? Like if you if we were really living in Bitcoin world now, you would have to work twice as long at $35,000 per Bitcoin to pay off your mortgage or your student loans as you had to work at $17,000 per Bitcoin, right? So like, that's not gonna work. You can't, have a, you can't have a currency that's that volatile if you actually wanna use it to buy and sell stuff. Yeah, so, so I, we talk about kind of the challenges of Bitcoin as a currency, obviously getting, getting a lot of attention right now with all the craziness going on in the market. Should the average person be paying attention to what's going on with Bitcoin? I mean, not unless it seems interesting to them, you know, like Bitcoin, it's intellectually interesting to me. And like, I'm open to various use cases, right? Like, you know, there's a, there's a oligopoly on credit cards, right? It, it costs too much money. Uh, the, the processing fees on credit cards are arguably too high. People <clears throat> arguably pay too much money when they send money overseas, right? Remittances is this huge global business controlled by a few players. 
and it costs a lot in fees. And so if people can use um, Bitcoin or blockchain technology more generally to make, uh, to make transactions cheaper, that's great. That's a productivity gain, right? That's the pie getting bigger and everybody getting richer. And like, I am open to that. I'm ready to see that. I'm just not aware of it really flowering in that way. I feel like it hasn't really delivered on its promise yet. So yeah, so, so we've talked a fair bit about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. I think that that's one area where, where folks are trying to project out what, what does the future look out uh, uh, for money. What are your biggest questions about what the future is for money going forward today? I mean, it seems like a lot of the real action with money happens when there are crises, when there are financial crises, right? So I, I mean, the book has made me very wary of predicting anything. I was never that into predicting and like I'm less into predicting now because you just see again and again, smart people, not only do they not predict the future, they don't even understand what's going on in the present, right? I mean, you look at the depression and like, nobody knows really that it's the gold standard and really smart people are like, whatever you do, don't go off the gold standard. And like, pretty clearly they were wrong and going off the gold standard was a great move, right? And like, those people then were smarter and better informed than I am. So I don't know, I mean, you know, the, there's a really nerdy thing that's interesting to me that's going on now. And that is um, the persistence of low inflation and low interest rates. Like, I feel right. like that's one of those like weird, hugely important kind of behind the curtain, you know, gears of how the world works. Um, if you go back, say a, a year, basically, go back to right before the pandemic hit the US, we had very large deficits, right? We'd had, you know, significant tax cuts. Um, without spending cuts. We had very low unemployment, below 4%. And we also had very, very low inflation and interest rates. And you shouldn't have all of those things at the same time, right? If you have 3.8% employment and giant budget deficits, people should be afraid of inflation. The, the you know, interest rates on government bonds should be going up. Inflation itself, you would think would be going up. And it wasn't happening. And it hadn't happened for years. And it's really a mystery why? And it's usually important, like the fact that the government was able to borrow trillions of extra dollars in the past year, and that nobody even really argued about it that much. There was like, yeah, sure, let's get another trillion out to people. Like, that was a good thing. I mean, it meant, you know, many thousands of dollars for tens of millions of people who say lost their jobs and got extra unemployment, maybe the most important piece of that. And it was enabled in large part by these persistently low interest rates and persistently low inflation. And there are various stories for why it's happening, but I don't think it's really sunk in how big of a deal that is. Is it permanent? I mean, probably not permanent, but how long is it gonna last? Like if interest rates go back up, that'll be like a big problem. And so I think that is maybe an underappreciated kind of monetary reality we're living in. Oh, and also the Fed created trillions more dollars, right? Also should be inflationary and was not. J Jason talked earlier about the, the cost of light and you could you could look at the money printed and there's a similar chart when it comes <laughs> to right. like breaking the axes. So so so, yeah, I mean, for, for, you know, version two of this book, maybe you can throw that one in there. Yes, uh, it's it's extraordinary. And like I said, I mean, you can tell stories about why, but but clearly what economists thought 10 years ago was not right. Right. And it's a big the world is much different than people thought which is exciting.
So, so that's the big kind of macro question about the future of money. I wanted to kind of zoom in a little bit more micro. You talk about the stories of, for people of what's going on in finance. What is something that you do differently financially today in your personal financial life that's the result of things you've either learned on the podcast or, or through your work on, on this book? You know, I'm pretty into indexing. We did a, we did a story on, uh, on John Bogle several years ago. And, you know, I don't know if you guys uh, covered or remember this bet, this um, hedge fund manager made a bet with Warren Buffett. With Warren Buffett, yeah. Where Buffett said, you can't pick hedge funds that'll beat the S&P over 10 years. And um, the hedge fund manager who ran a fund of funds, whose job was picking hedge funds basically said, yes, I can. And uh, Buffett won and the hedge fund manager lost. And we did a story about that. And we went and talked to John Bogle, who, you know, founded Vanguard and invented the index fund. So like, I really believe in indexing. Although I will say the like crazy run up in tech stocks has made me question that a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I mean, it seems, you know, I, I don't. I think the st- I, I don't believe markets are perfectly efficient, and you can talk about what that means. But like, I really believe in indexing. Simple, boring answer. We do too. I don't feel bad about that at all. We, we think we think you know if you're someone who, who isn't trying to pay super close attention and look for individual stocks to pick and monitor your portfolio on a day to day basis and just wants to take advantage of this growth that we have in the economy that you talked about earlier that that's made possible by you know uh, the American financial system uh, I think index funds are a great way to capture that and, yeah. and sleep comfortably at night to, and know that you're going to get those rewards well or even I mean so much of it is behavioral too right because like you know I I've put some money now in a target date fund right which is like even more index you don't even have to decide when to rebalance right uh, and you know I have like a very small amount of money like I don't know, 1% of my investable assets that I like make stupid bets with, right? And like, I know they're stupid when I'm making them. And like, they're not crazy, they're just bets. And I I am obviously the dumb money, right? Like if you think about, you know, payment for order flow, right? If you have a retail trading account, the reason your trades are so cheap is because other people pay to be on the other side of your trades, right? right? Like think about what that means. That means you are the dumb money. You're such a bad trader that people will pay to bet against you. Whatever, whatever bet you're going to make, they're like, I'll take the other side of that guy, whatever he's trading. That's us, right? So like, that's what we're thinking about. Well, Jacob, thank you for giving back. I'm sure, I'm sure there are lots of people that appreciate your contribution <laughs> to their wealth there. Index. It's a great way to go. Jason, any last, any last questions before we, uh, we hit the road? Yeah. What's, I think this is, this, I think this might be, uh, really, really interesting to hear. What's your biggest question about the future of money? Remember, I don't know if you remember this, after the financial crisis, I guess politicians have to say this, like politicians, you know, they passed Dodd-Frank, the whatever reform act, and they're like, this will never happen again. And like, I hope they know better than that, right? Like, there will definitely be another financial crisis, because there's always another financial crisis. And like, it does not because people are greedy or bad, but just because the nature of finance is that uh, it leads to crises. It's just what happens. Um, and so I'm curious where the next financial crisis will be and like what it will mean. Cause like, those are the real, like the book is largely like, here's another crisis and here's what we learned and how money changed. And here's another crisis and here's another crisis. And so like, uh, I don't want it to happen. I hope it doesn't happen for a long time. I don't know where it will be. I mean, you can look at like debt and especially runnable debt, you know, when people are doing like taking, 
taking money that they promised to give back to people at a moment's notice and turning around and then lending it out long-term, right? Doing maturity transformation. Like that's a good place to look for a crisis because that's crisis prone. Um, But people doing it in weird ways that nobody really thinks about, like that's a big question to me. And I'm curious where it'll be in the world, where it'll be in the financial system, how money will change because it'll happen. We just don't know where or when. We'll be paying attention, and I, I'm sure you all will be covering it on, on Planet Money, and I hope we can have you uh, uh, back on the podcast sometime in the future uh, to talk about it. I want to remind everybody, the name of the book is Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Jacob, can you let everybody know where they can go find the book, where can they, they can find your work if they want to keep up with you? Uh, yes. what, what are you working on these days? You can find the book um, anywhere you buy books. Go into any bookstore or go on the internet to a giant or small bookseller, and they should have my book, Money, the True Story of Made-Up Thing. You know, truly what I'm working on right now is actually a story in that thing we were talking about, on like that the, the disappearance of, of inflation and interest rates. I'm trying to sort of, I'm trying to make it into a story, right? The struggle on that one is getting from topic to story. But there's this great story from, you remember James Carville worked in the Clinton administration. So that right. was back when Raging it Cajun. was- the Raging Cajun, very good. Uh, yeah, he's always got his LSU paraphernalia, right, when he's on TV now. Um, that was a story when the government really was checked by interest rates. They talked about the bond vigilantes and the Clinton administration wanted to do all these things. And, you know, treasury rates went up to like 8%, right? They're 1% today. And Carville had this thing where he's like, you know, I used to think that if there was reincarnation, I'd want to come back as the president or the Pope or a 400 hitter. But now I think I want to come back as the bond market. Because if you're the bond market, you can intimidate everybody, right? So like... I'm hoping maybe that's the beginning of the story, but yeah, so that's what I'm working on. You heard it here first. I love it. Well, well, well thank you, Jacob. And, uh, and I will be, uh, we'll be staying tuned in for whenever, uh, whenever it comes down the pike. Great. Thanks so much. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Heather Horton for mixing the show. For Jacob Goldstein and Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. <laughs>